are listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Iona Italia, coming to you from Buenos Aires, as usual. My guest today is documentary filmmaker Jay Shapiro. Jay is joining us from New York City. Welcome, Jay. Thanks for having me. Jay is, has made several films, All Rise, which is a documentary about a law competition, a moot competition, um, Opposite Field, which tells the story of a Ugandan baseball team, and most recently, Islam and the Future of Tolerance, which we're going to be talking about today. He's also launching his own podcast uh, in mid-June with Coleman Hughes, and that podcast is going to be called Dilemma, and I think we'll also get into discussing that uh, later in this podcast. So it's great to have you, Jay. Yeah, it's really great to be here. I've been excited to talk to you. I just watched Islam and the Future of Tolerance last night, and I have actually read the book. I read the book when it first came out, which was a couple of years ago. When did that? When was that book published? I think 2010 now. I should probably know that, huh? I think it's 2010. Let me see. It's 2015. Oh, their conversation was 2010. Oh. Right. Okay. Yes. Published 2015. Yeah. Oh, and they had the con- they had the actual conversation in no, guess, 2010. Oh no, I guess it was th- their first clash was 2000. I'm getting my dates mixed up. Mixed up. Their first clash was 2010. Their, this conversation was 2014, and then I guess it was published a year later. Yeah, correct. So, Islam and the Future of Tolerance is a book that's written in the form of a dialogue between Sam Harris and Muslim reformer Majid Nawaz about, well, I think it's clear from the title what it is about. It's about how we can, what the hope is for integrating Islam into a modern liberal Western society. Mm. And um, I absolutely loved the film. And I usually... I have to confess that I usually can't watch documentaries. <laughs> if it's something important that I need to watch, like Mike Niner's documentaries, which I've watched, I listen to them as though they were podcasts. Huh. But I don't. I try to avoid looking at the screen. Yeah, I find that documentary films make me sick, make me nauseous, <laughs> or they give me a migraine. They either make me nauseous or, or give me a migraine. But <laughs> your film did not. It's very polished and. You keep the camera still, which I really appreciate. Yeah. It's not all wobbling all over the place. I mean, I know that that's sometimes unavoidable because you have to use raw footage. That's the case in Mike's films. He's using a lot of, you know, raw footage of of events, protests, et cetera, that happen. But yours is done in this very slick and extremely aesthetically pleasing way. Thank you. And I was quite surprised because it's basically a conversation and most of it is Sam or Margaret talking. But the way that you use quotations from from the book and from their conversations 
the way that you use the graphics to illustrate and make the words clear was really uh, genius. There's one moment when Majid is talking about Chinese whispers. So mm. he says that the hadiths, Muhammad's words in the hadiths come to us through a process that's like Chinese whispers. So the Muhammad did or didn't say whatever it was that he allegedly said, and then it was right. passed on to the next person, and then that person's words were passed on to the third person, etc. And you have potential distortion at every stage. Mm, yeah. Uh, you showed this series of round colored circles, beginning with a, a pale blue circle mm. on the right-hand side of the screen. And as Majid was sort of outlining the different stages of this game of Chinese whispers, you, you show the set of circles gradually changing from blue through turquoise to green. It yeah. was just a, a small but brilliant idea. So I, I loved it. I, I found the film much more entertaining and um, pleasurable to watch than I was expecting. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate yeah, all the kind words. It was... Uh... It was delicate that that kind of film is a kind of surgery. You know, we we shot, as you saw, the the analogy that the men use of a tightrope walk. And uh, we decided to open the film just with that line and just it, where Majid is bringing up that analogy that this kind of conversation is like a tightrope walk and just go with, you know, a black screen with white titles and just be very simple. Um, yeah, we tried to be as hands off as we could be and just kind of, yeah, just, you know, fingerprints when needed and let the content sort of carry you through it because of the gravity of the conversation and the seriousness of it. We wanted to deliver that promise to the audience from the beginning that we as filmmakers are going to try to take this very seriously and solemnly as well. So yeah, I appreciate the kind words on, uh, on the, the, the work in there. It's a sumptuous aesthetic, I would say, surprisingly. You know, the lighting is very warm and the scenes in the theater. There's something very, very, very aesthetically pleasing about that, about Thank that you. film. Also, Margaret is so nicely lit and he looks gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's fun. He's always very dapper, that guy. <laughs> um, but the way you lit his skin tone, it's just, it's beautiful. Anyway, I should stop, I, sh I should stop rhapsodizing about Margaret's sexiness. <laughs> Because that would be distracting to serious ideas, which we have come here to discuss. Before we move into the film, what made you decide to become a filmmaker to begin with? Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I could start the origin story uh, as far back as, as necessary. But the, the short version of it is I, I went to college thinking I was going to be a writer, you know, fiction writer and short stories and uh, maybe an English major, something like that. And somewhere along the line, I was introduced to screenwriting and just sort of fell in love with that format. Maybe I was foolish to think that there's so much white on the page of a screenplay that it's easier to write than a novel. That's, uh, that's, a, tra <laughs> that's a trap. It's just as hard or, or harder. Uh, but I loved the format and sort of fell in love with it and um, wrote a few short scripts in college. And then, you know, of course, you write scripts not to just keep them on the shelf. And I thought, hey, what would it be like to try to make this? And just fell in love with the form of it. Um, and then got a grant in college to go to West Africa, actually Ghana, uh, for a summer, a place that I, I had been when I was in high school, actually, which is another story. And, um, 
brought a camera. It was a grant to make a little sort of student film about something I found there. And um, yeah, I don't know. I just found documentary filmmaking as a way to scratch these intellectual itches that I had and questions that I didn't know how to answer that kind of forced me to to be engaged in the world, if that makes sense. You know, like you could do a lot of thinking in your own head and get kind of trapped in these loops of your own thoughts and talking to yourself. But if you're going to make a good documentary film, like even take the Ugandan baseball one, you know, if you're going to make a film that's any good, you just have to engage with the world outside of your head and with those characters who are real people uh, around you in just like a a more intimate way. So I just, I don't know. I, I guess I loved that it, it forces you to, um, to test your thoughts in the world and to actually sort of discover things in, in other people and in other stories and other storylines and other worlds that, you know, you might not fit in without the camera. It kind of gives you an excuse to be there and then you, you better do a good job once you're there with this tool. So I don't know, that's sort of a a poetic version of it, but, um, yeah, it's just, uh, uh, you know, I, I discover things every time that I pull the camera out. So why not keep going? And what made you decide to film the Islam and the Future of Tolerance? Because it's really not an obvious choice. Yeah. Um, the book, although I feel it's a very useful book, it's also, to be frank, rather a dry and mm. boring, and surprisingly boring book. But it, it would be it would not be an obvious choice of something to bring to screen, although yeah. you really bring it to life in a wonderful way. So where did the seed of that idea come from? I, well, I mean, the book, yeah, maybe uh, it it was interesting to me in a lot of ways, or at least important to me, I'll say. I mean, my my, uh, sort of emotional journey through the particular conversation, you know, I'd been following Sam's career since 9-11 to kind of tie it to the last question. I was well on my way to a film degree uh, in college, and I was uh, a sophomore when 9-11 hit. And that started, of course, a lot of the questions, which, you know, what, 14 years later led to this film in my own head. But I was following Sam's career very early on with sort of the four horsemen with Hitchens and Dawkins and Dennett and and Sam, of course. And my my college campus was a very uh, we would call it SJW now at the time. I You know, I don't know what we would call it, just a very lefty liberal college campus. And I maybe saw the writing on the wall or had some very uncomfortable conversations very early on after September 11th that alerted me that this might be a very painful conversation to have. And that frustration boiled over, probably mirrored Sam's frustration, just seemingly watching the the hypothesis of the post 9-11 kind of Sam Harris worry, if I had to summarize it, of, you know, if we fail to have this conversation, people that we don't want to have it are going to have it. Just seeing that prediction more and more become prophecy, and now I think hard to deny that maybe that has reached (laughs) its hopeful last stage, although I'm sure it could get worse. That frustration led me to view Majid in particular and that debate that we feature in the film that launched this book and then this film where he debated Ayan Hirsi and Douglas Murray on stage. You know, I sort of just dismissed Majid as just another, you know, Reza Aslan type apologist in this space and didn't know that there was anything really to discover more there. 
And then when I saw Sam engaged with him four years later, when this this book started to to surface and it, it was, you know, I learned that they were collaborating, it just gave me a lot of pause in my own sort of dismissiveness. And if I had missed something, um, so I when the book came out, I, I devoured it and was really ready for it. And just the linguistic toolbox that Majid is trying to present Sam and in, in many ways people like me of the readers who came to this conversation through people like Sam, uh, I just found so valuable that in my own personal life, every conversation on this topic I had just got better. I wished I had had this kind of knowledge and linguistic toolbox on my college campus in the post 9-11 you know, fallout. So I, I was inspired to just do what I could do as a filmmaker, if I have any talent in that space, to bring it to to a visual space. Because as you said, you know, not everyone reads and not everyone follows it in that particular space. Um, I thought we could explore things visually. And then, of course, give give the opportunity to go a little deeper in in the visual space, as you already pointed out, maybe using some visual analogies and other techniques of film that you can't really do in the, in the space of, of a book that, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I approached the team that was pouring Sam and Majid in Australia and brought up the idea. They loved it. And yeah, it wasn't long after that, that we had a film on our hands. So so I don't know. Yeah, I guess I just found the whole conversation important. If I could amplify it in any other medium, I was I was ready to do it. I mean, were you at all concerned about becoming associated with that discussion? Hmm. Because both Sam and Majid are very controversial figures. Yeah. Um, I have to say my, my route was the opposite of yours in mm. that I was, I had been following Majid's career for a while and... I used to be actually a paid-up member of um, the Quilliam Circle. Oh, wow. So I was sending them some, some money monthly. And I had obviously read uh, Marget's memoir, Radical. Yeah. And in my early days of Twitch, I had quite a few conversations with um, Harris Rafiq, who features in your documentary. Yeah. And I was very interested in Quilliam's work. And then Marget brought out the I – watched, I watched actually the debate – I can't remember who the lady was who was on Majid's side oh, with yeah. uh, Sam. Reza, Diane Hersey Reza, Lee on the other yeah. on the other side. I watched that debate after which I gather Majid and Sam locked horns. Yes, and had this kind of standoff. So when the book came out, I started listening to Sam Harris's podcast as a result mm. of the book, the Islam and the Future of Tolerance book. That's when I became a Sam Harris fan. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so we came to it from the other opposite ends of the of the conversation. Yeah. But yes, I was wondering about that, given that they are both controversial figures, especially Majid. Majid has attracted so much negative attention and uh, even threats and violence and um, threats of violence. And I wondered whether that was a concern for you, whether you were how it was received and whether you were concerned about how it would be received. <laughs> well, my, my mom was probably a little concerned, <laughs> but um, no, I, it, what's, what's fun to be as uh, the role of the director of it is, you know, I'm not a, uh, I don't mind being associated with these men at all. I'm, I, I'm, you know, friends with them and really obviously respect their work a lot, but being the f- director, I'm not beholden to either of their arguments in full by any means. You know, I, I disagree with, with both of them on certain things and at different times. But I, I, um, 
Yeah, no, the, the reception has been good. I, you know, I don't keep my ear too closely to the, the crazies. And, and what's actually pretty gratifying is every now and then if, if there's some flare up about it in someone, usually it comes from the Islamist side more so than the far left side with this film, um, you know, lashing out about Majid or this or that or whatever. It, 99% of the time you do a little digging just with this quick, you know, conversation if you want online to engage and you realize they haven't watched the film. They they haven't read the book and you know and in that in some ways the film was also a way to do that where you know it's it's 90 minutes it's like if you really want to engage in this conversation you don't have to read a whole book you don't have to like buy anything that's like 150 pages long or just you know it's 90 90 minutes and 99% of the time they haven't even watched the film so I, I haven't really taken it too seriously I haven't seen anything um, you know personally like that but no, I, I guess we all have to kind of do the calculation in our heads that it's worth it, um, that there is a small risk involved, maybe a bigger risk for someone like Majid, obviously, and Sam, who are much more visible and connected to this conversation. But we all sort of do the calculation of, you know, the negative universe comparison of, of this risk is worth it. And you just have to calculate that there's some fallout and there's some risk and maybe even some negative consequences. You know, it's possible that some people watch the film and, you know, I don't know, view it very selectively and find themselves getting angrier. I have no idea. We try to be as careful as we can. You always have to accept those risks when you engage in risky conversations or dangerous conversations or conversations that are seemingly out of bounds. But you have to believe that in some utilitarian balance, the, the universe is a, is a better place and you're adding, you're adding value by having the conversation, even admitting that there's potential harm maybe to yourself and even to others. Um, and I think, you know, to be as responsible as you can be is to mitigate that and walk as carefully as you can. But I think these conversations are important. Um, you know, it's, it's why Sam started writing after 9-11. It was sort of just, you can, we can no longer stay on the sidelines was sort of his, as an atheist, I think in that regard, uh, you know, the costs are just too high and we're all paying too high of a penalty for not having these conversations. And, uh, what we do with that, I, I don't know. You, there, it, you're always bound to be misunderstood at some degree. And as Sam well knows, and Majid, you're bound to have a certain group of people who want to misunderstand you. And, you know, that's part of the territory, I think. But we just have to think the world is is in a better place because of the kind of work we do. Um, whether it is or not is an impossible negative universe question to answer. So there you go. Mm. Hey, we were talking before this podcast or, you know, we were talking online a little bit about the different styles of presenting this topic, mm. that part of the problem uh, in Sam Harris's case or part of the reason I think why so many people misunderstand and dislike Harris is because there are really two ways of, of using language. And this, I hope, will feed into another point that I something mm. I want to ask you about. There is a more instrumental, or we could say um, rhetorical, persuasive, diplomatic, political um, way of using language, uh, in which case you are choosing your words carefully with, 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 a, with an eye to their impact mm. on the listener, with a sense of what 
what kind of emotional effect will these will this particular choice of words and topics have on people? And there is another way of using language, which is a purely exploratory thinking aloud kind of way, mm-hmm. which I would describe as more as more philosophical. And Sam is very much from the from the second school that when he's he's speaking he is exploring the idea he is not presenting a case it doesn't have this kind of slightly um lawyerly it doesn't have a lawyerly feel to it right it's not like an attorney standing up in court and putting his case and Majid is much much more of an orator in that sense i have much more of a sense of somebody who is in control of the rhetoric side of things whereas sam is just thinking and the language is intended to be as transparent as possible a representation of his thought and that's why he also he also likes to do these thought experiments and hypotheticals and people who who are more sort of political orators don't use hypotheticals like that because hypotheticals from philosophy tend to be very extreme <laughs> right you know, you have hypotheticals like the trolley problem. The trolley mm-hmm. problem is asking you to choose, uh, asking you to, in your mind, be a murderer. Right. And wow. decide how many people you're going to murder. <laughs> and so, and nobody responds badly to the trolley problem because everybody is familiar with that problem and therefore recognizes the genre that it's in, recognizes it as just this hypothetical Mm-hmm. But when you bring in new hypotheticals, each time you have people saying, what do you mean if there was a nuclear war? That's a horrible and shocking thing to imagine. <laughs> you know? right. a, a lot of the problems that people have with Sam stem from that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Approach. Yeah, yeah I... I um... Yeah, I put out an article that tried to break this down a little bit. The, yeah, I, I agree with the way you were framing it. I, I sort of broke down three different mindsets of how, as you said, sort of language. But I think the it's not just language. I think the intention is actually what separates them. It's the purpose of these kinds of mindsets. So, yes, as, as you were mentioning, I identify the philosophical mindset, which is a mindset where you are interested in finding the truth. And you could, you could define truth as sort of flimsily and, and esoterically as possible as you want there, um, or as concretely, because it's also sort of a scientific mindset is interested in finding a, another certain kind of truth. But the philosophical mindset is about finding truth. The political mindset is about discovering what is effective, as you said, sort of mobilizing, mm-hmm. which, which, is, which is a... Uh, Im- amoral, not immoral, but amoral. You could point that in any direction, right? Like you can, political speech is about you have an intention and we could talk about the morality of that intention sort of separately, but speech, like you said, rhetoric to get people to move in whatever direction that you want them to move in, that's political speech. It's no surprise, as you mentioned, Majid, when he was in his Batakir, the, the Islamist organization, he was a recruiter. He's very good at this mm-hmm. kind of speech. So he's yes. now using his natural skill you know, he wasn't like a foot soldier. He was a recruiter because I think they recognize just how how good he is at mobilizing people. And he still is very good at it. But then the, the third the third mindset is the psychological mindset. And this is the one that I think has really um, is is the most difficult one and oftentimes the most maligned one, uh, maybe for good reason. But it's but it, I, my, my main 
sort of effort is that all three of those things, if you picture a Venn diagram, there is an overlap there. And I want them all to mash together a little more. But you're right. The philosophical mindset that's worried about truth, something like the trolley problem that you brought up, which is maybe now the most famous thought experiment, um, psychologists kind of hate it because they're like, you know, this is silly. This isn't how the real world works. Like you, the trolley problem is great as a thought experiment in a lab in a philosophy 101 class, but people are not, it, you, it sort of, uh, it imagines a scenario where you could sort of freeze time and rationally think through all of these things and pull a lever when really someone like John Height's work, who's a moral psychologist and researching these things and not really a moral philosopher. And a former guest of our podcast. And a former guest, <laughs> I know. And he's one and, and uh, on mine too, which, which we'll talk about later. I'm super excited to, to have him as well. Um, is the psychological mindset, to, to finish my Venn diagram, is a mindset where you're interested in learning how minds work. And that is, you know, research or, or even just sort of pure thought. Um, but the trolley problem, it, it doesn't work sort of in a vacuum. Trolley problems appear all of the time in reality, and they're not so clean. And, and there's not only one right answer, one wrong answer of how to answer it. And he's interested in, and the psychological mindset is interested in, and yes, people, people do something and then can we evaluate it? Do they even know why they did what they did? And I think Sam gets in trouble um, because in a philosophy mindset, we also hinted about talking about this. Um, it's become very chic in the philosophical mindset. And Sam uses the line a lot of times of sort of, you know, he's not a mind reader, right? Like ISIS says, we're blowing up this building or doing whatever they're doing because we want to get to heaven. And these people are infidels and the book tells us to do this. And so Sam and the philosophical mindset says, I believe them and I take them at their word. And that's that's attractive to do. The psychological mindset and the psychologist sees that conversation and they kind of say, well, I kind of am a mind reader. And so what they really mean is this. And that is where, of course, you can get into really dangerous territory because you can do that in very nefarious ways and you can dismiss all religious motivation using that kind of magic trick of saying, you know, no one ever really believes in heaven or infidels. Or like this is all just sort of post hoc rationalization for, you know, I don't know, racial anxieties or economic anxieties. You could play the game to sort of erase anything uncomfortable that comes out of philosophy and the philosophical inquiry. But you could also play the game for really important uh, reasons and really important, like there's tons of insights, of course, in psychology that are necessary, particularly for the, the politicians and the political mindset, which is trying to mobilize people. If you know how minds work, you certainly can point them in whatever direction you need to point them in. Uh, but yeah, th this is probably why Sam gets in uh, a lot of trouble with, with those thought experiments. Uh, thought experiments, a lot of philosophers and philosophical inquiries. Um, when you're discovered, when you're interested in discovering truth, you're not being, of course, politically correct. You allow yourself to wander in kinds of all, all kinds of different directions. And people, maybe rightfully so, often question your motivations of like, why are you asking such crazy, crazy questions? Like, what are you really up to here? What's the point of this whole kind of thing? Um, so yeah, it, it gets, it gets people in, into trouble. Uh, I'm, Sam's used to it by now, but also maybe to give some credit to his detractors, when you are a public philosopher and you're engaging in books that you know are going to be read by a lot of people, they will have influence. And so, as we were sort of mentioning before, there's always a cost and a risk to speech. This doesn't mean we shouldn't speak and 
of course, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of free speech, but there's a cost to it and a risk to it. And we ought to be responsible with it. And if you're a philosopher and you're going to engage in sort of publicly digestible books, as Sam does, um, you're you, you ought to be aware of the tendency to be misrepresented. And you ought to be aware of the psychological reasons why someone might want to misrepresent you. Um, so the, the dialogue between moral philosophers and moral psychologists, I think, needs to be a little bit tighter. There's like a bizarre tension there that really doesn't need to be there. So maybe my favorite moment in the film, to bring it back to the film, was when he reassessed a line that he wrote in The End of Faith, where he wrote, we are at war with Islam. And that was the full sentence and talking with me and maybe with the hindsight of realizing how popular that book would be. You know, he wrote that not knowing anyone would read it just turned out to be a huge bestseller. Um, He probably would have written it a little differently because it's he could obviously recognize that kind of statement is fine in a philosophy class and then you could say what you mean but it's inflammatory on the page and it's easy to misrepresent and it's easy to take out of context and you know being a sort of consequentialist and a utilitarian as Sam probably would call himself more of a consequentialist he has to weigh the consequences of writing that sentence versus writing a sentence a lot more carefully and clearly if he had had the conversation with Majid before writing that sentence it may have come out a little differently and he would have meant the same thing, but as you were suggesting, he would be engaging in more of the politically careful rhetoric, which acknowledges the psychological messes that we all are and that people are going to be willing to misrepresent you and maybe take that line out of context on purpose and, all, and, and maybe do some real harm because of that line. So, um, yeah, maybe that's my favorite moment of the film. And generally the film, I, I, uh, in the entire endeavor between Majin and Sam, I liked because I saw it as, as you suggested, a political thinker and a philosophical thinker trying to find that elusive overlap in the in the Venn diagram where you're saying something true and effective, which is is really, really hard on a lot of subjects, especially this one. Mm, I take your point about the need for efficacy, but I also I really don't want Sam to change (laughs) the way that. Yeah, me either. I know. Uh, speaks and writes because that kind of exploration of ideas for their own sake and that kind of frankness and willing to risk is to me extremely refreshing. And I also feel that if you allow yourself to be overly influenced by how people are going to interpret what you've said, then it's the end result of that is complete paralysis. Yeah. Because you you cannot, this is the stoic fork, um, which I have mentioned on this podcast mm. maybe once or twice before. So I apologize <laughs> for the repetition, but I'm very into stoicism. And um, mm. it's the difference between what you have control over, which is your your thoughts, words, and actions, if indeed you have control over them, right, that's another. Right. That's a whole another topic and can of worms. The whole free will thing, but if there's something you have control over, it's your own thoughts, words, and actions. Especially your words and actions. I think thoughts are not very controllable. And but the thing that you don't have control over is other people's thoughts, words, and actions. Mm. And if you are gearing what you have to say entirely towards how other people are going to react, 
I think you are going to dilute your message. I think you're going to tie yourself in knots. And I really, that's not, I feel that there is so much of that kind of rhetoric around. That is what politics is. It's what business uh, is. It's advertising. Everywhere people are saying what they think other people want to hear. Yes. And I want to hear what you think, not what you think I want to hear you say. Not you personally. Yeah. I mean, yes, you personally, Jay, but in general also. <laughs> um, so I, I find this kind of, I hear this as a criticism of Sam a great deal, um, mm. that he should have chosen his words more carefully because certainly some people would misinterpret them. And usually I actually think, no, I'm glad he just wrote, we are at war with Islam. And I'm happy to go to the context and see what he meant by that. And I'm I'm glad he said that and didn't say something that was much more hedging. Right. Yeah, I, I didn't care either. I mean, obviously, um, you mentioned uh, my forthcoming podcast. It's all about moral philosophy. And we on every episode, I probably try to get Coleman to kill someone. <laughs> so it's so I, I, I have no I, I, I have no aversion to these crazy things. I mean, yeah, to your point, these things are, um, yeah, my, my point is that the philosophers and the philosophical mindset needs a, to be a little more aggressive at the, to getting a place at the table, which is, you know, Sam, Sam made an effort here with, with Majid and, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you about that. Um, we shouldn't be, that shouldn't be the, the filter that is, that is, between our thoughts and our mouths is other people. Uh, but I, when you are engaged public, I'll say this at the set of, at the beginning of the book with Majid, they, Sam was very explicit that he didn't want to have a sort of an ideological conversation. It wasn't going to be a conversation about does God exist? It was going to be sort of a purely political one about how should we talk about this? Um, it's, it's somewhat easy to throw spitballs from the back of the classroom, right? Like when when Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton or any politician after some terrible terrorist attack would get up and say this has nothing to do with Islam, mm. you could you could give them all of the of the benefit of the doubt that this was a noble lie. That of course they know it has something to do with Islam, but they don't know how to say it because they're afraid if they say it there's worse consequences, right? Like give Barack Obama the intentions that yeah, he yeah, you know yeah. he's trying to do that. I, but you I throw do, but I still it. find it right. annoying and condescending. Oh, me too. Me, me, me too. Uh, yeah, I mean, so if, but it's so it's easy to throw spitballs because I found it annoying, not only annoying but harmful, right? Like I was rather convinced and still am uh, by Sam's warning of like that's a lie and people know it's a lie. So the people that you're trying to protect are actually put in more damn, uh, you know, more danger because of your lie. Even if your intentions are good, the outcome's not going to be. I totally convinced by all of that. I think the data shows that actually rather clearly now. But so it's easy to throw spitballs and be like, hey, Barack, that's that's harmful and stupid. Stop saying it. But what's hard to do is answer the question of imagine Barack being like, OK, Sam, what should I say? That's the harder thing. And that's where it was like, oh, hey, Majid, help me out here. You're a politician. What should we say? And uh, and so like for that particular effort, the philosopher trying to be a politician, I think, is an interesting thing. And Sam might not be great at it. This probably gets him in, into even more trouble than what you're saying. Like if philosophers stay in their in their ivory tower talking about trolley problems, people are OK. But as soon as they start talking about politics, people get very nervous. And this is really why Sam gets 
you know, a lot of uh, bashing, I think. So, yeah, I, I agree with your point. And but when you're when it's a philosopher trying to have a political conversation, then, yeah, may, maybe that that's what that would be. I, was The End of Faith a political book? I, I don't know, but it would have some political fallout for sure. Um, but mm. yeah, like to your to your point, I think I think philosophy needs to be more aggressive, less apologetic about these things. I mean, just to throw a few of the crazy dilemmas that I'll be dealing with on my show, it's, you know, crazy things. It's like debating the ethics. Maybe my favorite case of of the first season is a deaf couple that intentionally wants to like use genetic engineering to change uh, their baby into a deaf baby and the ethics of that. It's like crazy stuff. Uh, With the very first episode we're putting out, it's called Fire at the Louvre, and it's like the Save the Mona Lisa or Save a Person one. We coincidentally did it before the Notre Dame uh, fire. But, you know, we're like throwing, we have crazy terrorist scenarios that we come up with, and there's bombs in it and meteorites, and it's crazy stuff that hopefully people realize is, is a lot of fun to let your mind go there. But there's a point to it because you hope what you discover in the philosophical mindset of what is true or what might be morally true, even if there's many moral truths, that ought to be the guide of the political and the psychological. Like if you imagine sort of analogy of everyone getting into like a car together, the politician's driving, the psychologist is trying to figure out how to get everyone in. And the philosopher hopefully is the one who's figuring out which direction we should drive. Mm. But it's it. And that's why I agree with you. I hope Sam never changes. I think he's a really talented um, thinker and critical thinker. Uh, and we need more of that. So, yeah, hope, hopefully I can also be a part of that um, conversation, because if we're all politicians, we're really, really in trouble <laughs> because then we're just driving in circles, probably. Well, it's interesting that Marjit and when Marjit and Sam initially butted heads, um, it was over a misunderstanding about these kind of styles of rhetoric that Sam was listening to the talk and he thought Marjit is saying this because it's politically expedient. I think he called it a noble lie at some stage and Marjit was extremely insulted by that. That was that was a very interesting misunderstanding. I feel that the one thing that I noticed as I was watching the film, um, which has nothing to do with your filmmaking, but is something about the book that I hadn't really mm. been quite so aware of before, is that those categories, those concentric circles of different types of Muslims in the center, you have the jihadists, then you have the Islamists, um, who are much um, larger group than the jihadists are the smallest group. Um, and I think those people, those are the people who really do, they really are the true believers. Um, they're taking this quite yeah, literally. Yeah. And this is the kind of person also, he wasn't a jihadist, but the kind of person Armin Navabi also used to be. Armin mm. attempted mm-hmm. suicide when he was uh, a child um, yeah. because uh, at 15, you become an adult in Islam, and from then on, you're respons- considered fully responsible for your actions. So if you sin, you can end up going to hell. Whereas up to the age of, I think it's 15, you are an innocent. And so if you die as a child, you will go to heaven automatically. Um, and so Armin decided to kill himself before he turned 15 so that he could go to heaven, because that was a... a that seemed to him like the obvious rational choice. Why would you risk becoming an adult? Yeah, it was, it was really, and potentially, he, found, he found, the, found the loophole. It was really, really yes, brilliant thinking yes. on his part. Yeah. And that, 
so clearly Armin is a complete nutcase, um, <laughs> well, let's say a sort of psychological outlier. Um, and of course, he no longer thinks like this. But that is, I think for the jihadists also, that is the ultimate commitment. So that is a kind of sign that you really do believe it, whereas almost nobody else really believes it. Um, because they don't kill themselves in childhood and they don't um, become suicide bombers. And, you know, they aren't rejoicing when some somebody they were close to died because they think that person was so virtuous they are now in heaven. Because there is at least some seed of, of doubt there. Anyway, I was, I was the jihadists, the Islamists, the conservative Muslims and then the liberal Muslims. And I think that jihadists and Islamists, fine. But once we get to conservative versus liberal Muslims, I think that it's it's perhaps the wrong lens to think of that in terms of groups of people, as opposed to predominant ideas, um, because I think um, people are endlessly complicated and can change over time, and can change in response to specific circumstances, and are influenceable and malleable. And I also felt like I don't know where to place within that scheme some of the Muslims I met in India who were devout and quite conservative in certain ways, but they were also, they were also very liberal in other ways and quite mm. integrated into civil society. So I don't know where to where to sort of draw those lines and I feel like there's much more of a there is that is much more of a murky a much murkier area than than of course I mean they had to generalize that clearly you yeah. you have to there's no other way about it. But I think that that is perhaps one of the shortcomings of that diagrammatic approach. I think even the the line that I worry about there is also the the line between Islamist and conservative Muslim because yeah using Majid's definition of Islamism which is um, the desire to impose any given form of Islam over society and that's Islamism it's that's sort of identifiable it's someone who is a, a theocrat or or you know agrees with theocracy and in particular brand of Islam. Um, but what would we call someone in the conservative Muslim circle who doesn't care, you know, doesn't want to impose this upon society, but he's sure as hell not going to have a gay son. And right. if his son's gay, his son is in real physical danger and going to be beaten and maybe killed, etc. Well, is this person an Islamist? Is this society? Like the, the circle of society, be on, when you zoom in on a localized level, kind of disappears. Like if I'm that kid's son, I don't care what you call him. He's a problem for me. And where his ideas come from also becomes, you know, a problem. Whatever tangled web he's he's woven in his own mind that includes religion and the doctrine and justifies this feeling he has for his son, this is a problem for him. Um, but I, again, Majid from sort of a zoomed out, like you said, you, we need these words to kind of be politically um, savvy in a way because politicians and when you're going to broadcast kind of a message about this 
problem or this anxiety that everybody's feeling, you need to kind of coarse grain it with these big terms. And yeah, I, I think when you zoom in, it breaks down in a lot of ways that are that are difficult. And maybe even there's a point in the film that we highlight where Majid admits the maybe fatal flaw in the entire enterprise of the reform movement of that you sort of need two ways to talk about this thing. When you're talking about, as you mentioned, the jihadists and the Islamists who might be an immediate you know, danger of blowing things up or you know, really awful things that are, are, we see on the news, um, you use a certain set of language. But when you're talking about something like gay rights or you know, just open liberal ideas, then you use a different set of language. Well, is that, a, that could be a fatal flaw in the entire enterprise. Um, I don't know if Majid has a perfect answer to it. And I, you know, I might be pointing to it with imagining this zoomed in when the society is just you and your mom and your dad, and this is a problem for you. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm agnostic on, sign of, on the whole thing. You mentioned Armin, who's quite skeptical of, of Majid's work. This doesn't mean he, he gets in his way at all, but he certainly thinks, why are you wasting your time promoting any reform version of this thing? Just promote atheism. Um, you know, I'm, I'm actually agnostic on Sarah it. Sarah Hayes know. feels yeah. that way as well. Um, yeah. And I know that that was always Ayanne Hersiali's stance too, although Ayanne has softened on that stance more recently. Yeah. I think that, oh, I should be asking you this rather than opining on it. <laughs> um, how do you feel about reform versus apostasy as strategy? Yeah, as, as strategy. Yeah, I'm... I'm I'm agnostic as well, although I think a bit doubtful, actually, of uh, of Majid. I mean, I guess it depends how we talk about what reform really means and and trying to be as as careful as, as we can be there. But if I'm going to take your advice and really not worry about the lens of which I'm being heard, um, I'm an atheist. And why should I, if that's good enough for me, and I think this is, this is the way to engage with the universe and to find moral truth and to really, you know, do what we ought to be doing in some, in some global sense or what I ought to be doing, well, why isn't that good enough for someone in Saudi Arabia right now? And I don't have a retort to that. So it would, for me, it would be engaging in a noble lie to say that Majid and the strategy is the end game, but if, if I say it's a strategy, then I have to admit that I think it's a strategy to land the plane totally to apostasy and to atheism uh, of all religion. I mean, I'm a fan of no of no religion and no religions, uh, but we could talk about that and sort of what that means in, in, in different senses, because that's a whole more detailed conversation. But yeah, it's it's a lot of times biting my tongue with Majid and the reform movement, because the analogy I like to think of is like the house is on fire. And they're the firefighters, but as soon as they put the fire out, we've got to talk because because we. I don't see a lot of daylight between someone like Usama Hassan, who works with Majid at Quilliam, this the theologian, and someone like Rabbi David Wolpe, who's sort of a, a Jewish intellectual, as it were, who Sam and and Hitchens and all those guys used to debate rather, uh, you know, openly, with I think great consequence of winning those debates against people like. Rabbi David Wolpe. But Usama Hassan kind of gets a pass right now because he's a particular kind of firefighter. I, I, can, I can point to, as someone like Sarah Hader, I think would agree with, the intellectual dishonesty there may be, again, a fatal flaw and a poison in the entire thing. But I have to 
bite my tongue, and I don't have a better answer to it. intellectual dishonesty? Because not Usama's, because he believes this, we assume, right? He believes it, yeah. I guess mine. Yours. Uh-huh. <laughs> or, yeah, or, or, or ours who are in the atheist community mm-hmm. who um, support what Majid's doing. Because, I mean, well, just in, again, the consequentialist philosophy game, the universe where Majid succeeds and reform Islam looks something similar to, to like the, re- the reform movement in American Judaism, which is something Osama Hassan has told me is sort of like wants to emulate. Well, that's a better universe than we're in now. So I have to like, I have to accept that math and hope he succeeds. Um, but it's, it's um, you know, I, <laughs> I throw jabs at people like Ben Shapiro all the time for his religiosity. And I don't, I don't do that for someone like Usama Hassan. But maybe I, you know, maybe that's a hypocrisy on, on my end that why, why does that get the pass? Um, mm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I tend to intellectually agree with Sarah Hader and Armin Navabi, but almost to, to go back to sort of the Sam Harris challenge, I could throw spitballs. I don't I don't know if I have I don't I don't have the gumption yet to totally sort of pull the rug out from Majid. Obviously, I'm making a film about it and want to amplify his message uh, and think he does he does really great things in the world. I'm rather convinced by his his message. Um, even though I know it's it's a political mindset and I just tend to have more of a philosophical mindset. So um, hopefully it's a means to an end. Uh, I could sort of I could sort of leave it there of what I think of the movement. Mm, I'll, I'll put in my I'll throw in my two cents. Um, yeah. I mean, I feel that my problem is with Islam, um, not really with religion in general, but with specific uh, manifestations of religiosity. I really dislike religious extremists. I dislike extreme conservatives in every religious tradition, including my own, which is Zoroastrianism. And in Islam, I feel that there is less wiggle room than in uh, most other religions for a good interpretation. There's there's Majid's thing, there's the reform idea, and there are also some some people who are very devout on a personal level, doing a lot of praying and things, and um, but are really not kind of imposing their conservative values on others. That's also a possibility. And that def- I definitely, I definitely witnessed some of that uh, among people, some of the Indian Muslims who I met, this kind of more spiritual practice that is not expressed in wanting to police even the family, let alone society. And I can, a, a kind of Sufi tradition often draws on that, um, or an Ishmaeli tradition. But I think that, I feel Islam has less wiggle room. I really dislike the Quran. Um, and I am not a huge fan of, of Christianity or Judaism either. But I'm not an atheist, so I'm the worst of all worlds. <laughs> I'm very mistrustful of people who are deeply committed to religion, because I feel that if you are going to put the teachings of a book or a doctrine above your natural human instincts, if you're going to try to suppress your natural natural ethical instincts in favor of some some religious teaching, that is going to go very badly wrong. And I really distrust priests. 
the whole kind of authority figure and authority structure. But I feel that, so I'm not, I'm really, really not a fan of Islam and I always get in trouble for saying this. <laughs> but I also think that there's kind of three things that we can hope for. And one is, one is reform. I think that's going to be the smallest factor, but it's still a factor. One is apostasy. And a friend of mine who's a Bangladeshi ex-Muslim actually told me it took him 10 years to leave Islam. But if he had read, he read Ali Rizvi's book very recently I, um, I, after I recommended it to him, Ali's book, The Eighth. Ali was also a former guest, of course, on this podcast. My friend said that if he had had Ali's book at the time, he would have left after reading the book. Um, Ali's book would, he believes Ali's book would have had such an impact on him that he would have left Islam quickly, as opposed to taking 10 years to leave. So, you know, he began having, having occasional doubts 10 years before he finally left. Yeah. Um, and he was in the West and he has a liberal, fairly liberal family who was not in any kind of danger. Um, but it was just a question of his beliefs shifting very gradually over time. And so I think that reform is an option, apostasy is an option, and I think also just people becoming more interested in something else rather than religion at the center of yeah. their lives is another yeah. option. That when people are, when, when the center of people's lives and attention is something else other than going to mosque or the Aguiari or church or whatever it might be, then it becomes more of a kind of private practice, like an atheist might practice meditation, as Sam does, um, and less of something that is placing um, tentacles and kind of smothering everything else. I don't know if I'm really making sense here, which is how I kind of treat, <laughs> how, how I sort of treat religious practice, like a meditation practice. So I think that all three of those things will be important. I think that Majit is probably, I feel like, although he might not like this, that Majit is perhaps less effective at persuading um, conservative Muslims to become more liberal and more effective at showing people that not all Muslims are conservative. Yeah, I think he knows that actually, yeah. Yeah, I think he, he knows it's, it's, I mean, as an anecdote, when we sat down before we started filming anything and we talked about making the film, we talked very openly about who we should make this film for, who the target audience is. And his answer very directly was the left in the West. You know, it was for, it was for confused kids on my college campus, really, that had no idea how to talk about this thing. I think he knows that's who he's most effective oh, uh, yeah. for. There's certainly other people at, at Quilliam, yeah, who might be a little more effective for for other groups but yeah Majid is an effective communicator to the left in the west for sure oh yeah I mean that's that's absolutely true but that wasn't what I was thinking actually I was thinking he was an effective in a sense oh. effective communicator for the far right um I don't mean for them I don't yeah. mean to suggest that he is like supporting them in any right. way um or aiding or abetting them I mean in sort of saving people from going over to the far right. Yeah. Because yeah. he shows them that not all Muslims are um, are kind of a threat. 
I guess. Um, I mean, I think it's ironic because I do think there's a lot of common ground ethically between the conservatism of the far right and the conservatism of Islam. So, you know, I think there's a lot of hypocrisy and a lot of the kind of far right stuff is really is motivated by a racism that's born out of fear because there's not that much fresh air between the two ideologies in some cases. Right. But I think that Majid is a good, has probably stopped some people from going down that rabbit hole. So in general, I think Majid is a really important person. I, that's why I supported Quilliam so much, so strongly. And um, I still support them, but I think it's going yeah. to be the least, likely to be the least important puzzle piece in right. what will hopefully be a kind of move towards a liberalization of Muslims and, yeah, of Muslims. It needn't be of Islam. It could be from just not having as much Islam in their lives as opposed to having right. a kind of kinder, gentler form of Islam. Either is, either is possible. If I could go back and, and clean up one yeah. thing, because yeah. I, realized, uh, I, I realized this recently when I, when I make the statement of something like I'm not a fan of any religion, I, I realized that uh, I use the word religion and religious much more broadly than most people do. And, and Sam had this realization as, as well fairly recently uh, as well. But so I, I challenged myself to, to put what I really mean by a religious idea into a specific sort of philosophical sentence. And, and I came up with, I'm somewhat proud of it, so I'm, I'm using it. A religious idea is one that insists on its truth and or its utility as, as adjudicated by evidence outside of the potentially discoverable naturalistic universe. So that's like a really big, broad idea when I mean in a religious idea. So even when you're talking about like, well, Islam in particular here, but any very religious person getting interested in something else, my mind just always goes towards actually being interested in the universe that we find ourselves in. Because I, the way I want to use the word a religious idea, it's a, it's a uni, it's a, it's an idea again, that's uh, the truth of it or the utility of it is judged by evidence outside of this universe. If you're actually engaged with this universe that we actually find ourselves in, which is quite difficult to do because it's weird and there's no rule book and it's mysterious. And as you already mentioned, we might not have free will. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy things in this universe. We, we, we know some things, we don't know a lot of things. It's full of mystery. It's quite scary. Death apparently is a real thing. Like all of these things that are actually in this universe that if you engage with it and if you, if you have an idea, um, so to borrow actually something from David Deutsch, who's my favorite thinker, um, if the act of sort of coming up with an explanation for a phenomenon in the universe, he describes, and I tend to agree with, is a pure act of creativity. Like at that moment, religion and science, there is no line. It's a pure act of creativity. But now if you have explanation A in one hand and explanation B in the other hand, how are you going to judge the truth or falsity of each one? If, if you're going to use evidence within the universe itself to judge whether this explanation is a good explanation for the phenomenon you find you found, well, that's that's critical thinking, that's science, that's not a religious method. But if you're saying the universe itself and the universe itself doesn't matter, it cannot possibly inform us about the truth or the utility of this thing, this is a religious idea. This just insists upon itself as evidence 
that is outside of the universe. So I'm using it sort of as broadly as that. So something like, you know, you mentioned meditation. Um, Sam, of course, wrote a whole book about meditation from a purely sort of secular point of view, and I think a really important one in waking up. Uh, and, and the philosophical mindset and the scientific mindset needs more of that sort of practical adaptation of what it means to actually engage with deeply and closely the mystery of the universe that we actually find ourselves in. And I guess it's possible to do that within a, well, within, you know, an ashram or within a mosque or within a synagogue or in some context, but you're either doing religion or you're not doing religion. And if you're not doing religion, you're doing reason and science because it's either this universe or it's not this universe. And that like, those are like these really big, broad lines that I want to be able to draw. When I say I'm not a fan of any religion, I, f I find philosophically religious ideas and the practice of religion is literally a way, a way to not engage with the universe that we find ourselves in. And atheism is just a committed atheist to someone who's committed to living in the universe that we actually find ourselves in, which is not so easy. Mm. You know, whenever I do the, the deep philosophical dive, I find I find the atheist commitment is actually the one that is hard and maybe to borrow sort of a funny word is actually the one that requires faith because there's nothing in this universe this is an old sort of philosophical David Hume is ought distinction you can't get an ought from an is there's there's nothing in the universe that tells us that it's meaningful or that there's some happy ending at the end of it or some we're ever going to know the end of it so why keep doing it why keep going on well it takes a measure of maybe call it faith Whereas the religious view of saying like, no, 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 this universe is too scary and too dangerous and it doesn't make any sense, but just trust the plan. God has a plan. It's not in this universe. You can't know it, but just trust it. That, you know, that's almost the lazy thing that requires no faith, really. That requires just this sort of, you know, you're just insisting on the answer rather than looking for an answer, failing to find one in the universe, but continuing to look, which is... David Deutsch named his book The Beginning of Infinity for the reason of like this journey, that journey literally never ends. And he's, you know, a brilliant mathematician who who proves that. Um, but the journey of looking for God, uh, religious people would probably disagree with me, actually ends. It actually ends when you find it. You go to the church and you, you accept Jesus or whatever it is. You ended it. You found it. You're done. Maybe discovering the mind of God or whatever analogy they want to use is this like endless thing. But they, they found the answer. And they're done and they're and they're they no longer need to look in the in this universe because they found the answer. And I, I, when I say I'm not a fan of any religion, it's 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 in that broad sort of sense. But I could redefine religion in almost a Jordan Peterson way that I oh could, God, that please, I could resurrect please don't. some utility. No, for please it. don't. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I can make his argument better than oh he God, does no, in a way that no. might be kind of charitable. I can't, I, but I I'm, cannot, no, I, I'm no fan of. Jordan, yeah, I cannot. Talking of things that give me a migraine, Jordan Peterson redefining religion <laughs> absolutely everything yeah. that you want it to mean at any point. It's just extremely annoying to me. Well, I, I mean, people already hate me during this podcast, I'm sure, because I'm saying everything <laughs> that is politically incorrect. And now I have alienated all the Jordan Peterson fans. Can, can I? Do you want me to try? I mean, I promise it won't be too painful. Try, but maybe keep it to <laughs> okay. under half an hour. <laughs> Oh, it'll be, it's going to be quick. It's going to be quick. So let, let, let me try quickly and I'll, I'll get to my criticism of Jordan very quickly. So if religion broadly defined is a storytelling technique to anthropomorphize 
existential anxieties we have about being in a mysterious universe, right? Like we're in a mysterious universe that death is a real thing. We don't know how we got here. There's evil, there's good. It's very confusing. So we sort of make characters about the wisdom and sort of lessons that we discover through going through this thing. And we make little stories almost like puppets and they bang against each other and you can make these very elaborate stories. You use these stories to communicate what you've think you've discovered about thinking about those existential things to each other and to form community and its utility and, um, you know, teaching your young and all that. If that's the habit of storytelling and you call that storytelling about the big existential fears religion, well, okay, I think that's probably fine and it's not going to go away. But the important part for me, the important point, important point of it for me and why I have a criticism of Jordan is it's very important that those stories actually talk about the situation that we find ourselves in. Again, the universe that we're actually in. So Jordan's, my issue with Jordan is, is his particular fetish for one particular story, which it turns out is just wrong about the universe that we're in in some pretty fundamental ways. One of the major ways that the sun is in the middle and not the earth. We all know the Galileo story. There's other problems with it. And that's not to say that all of it will vanish or there's no truth or no utility in the way that he wants to use those words that will survive that. But it's, it's just clear to me that we need to update our stories. Make, call it reform if you want. We need to update our stories. And some of the stories just twist so far that they actually snap. I would contend that Christianity is probably one of those. But Jordan's fetish for that particular story uh, is what bothers me. But again, to play the agnostic card and the political card, he worries that if we abandon all of our stories you know, then we're just in total chaos and free fall and society falls apart and he sees Nazi Germany and communism and all these other things. And I, I, I don't know if he's right or wrong. And Sam or someone like myself would advocate for, no, the actual hard work of atheism is once, once God is dead, as Nietzsche proclaimed, well, then what do you do? What do you do? How do we reinvent a better God in some concrete way or some way in our own heads? And that one, we, the only source that I think is valid to pull it from is the universe itself. The good news is there's a lot of mystery and beauty in the universe to pull it from. So, yeah, so that, that, that's my, my criticism of Jordan is his pessimism that we can do this. And I feel like he stands in the way of impeding the true interesting work and the progress that atheism needs to make. Uh, someone like Sean Carroll, who calls himself a naturalist and a poetic naturalist, uh, held a conference called Moving Naturalism Forward. There's a lot of people out there dedicated and interested in the work of, okay, God is dead, but what do we do now? How do we have meaning and community and beauty in the world and connection with each other? These aren't easy questions to answer. And Jordan, I feel like, is pessimistic that we should even start trying because he is sure it will fail. And I find that pessimism probably as irritating as you do. And it manifests itself in this bizarre fetish for Christianity and this bizarre thing where he can't even say that Jesus didn't raise from the dead and all this kind of stuff. So there you go. That, I don't know if that helps the Jordan Peterson fans or, or not, but I try. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't, I don't see why, um, I, I don't see why not believing in God would leave you without meaning because, um, you know, I read um, Richard Dawkins' book, um, The Ancestor's Tale, which is my absolute favorite of the Dawkins books. Um, I don't know if you've read that one. 
No, I haven't read um, it. So the ancestor's tale, it's structured like the Canterbury Tales. He imagines that you begin in the present day and you're going on a pilgrimage back through time, back to the beginning of life on our planet. That is the Canterbury that you'll reach at the end of the book. Um, and we go, we're going to go on a pilgrimage with the humans, but that's just because we happen to be human. Um, not because we are somehow the pinnacle of evolution, because every every other species which is around is equally evolved. So the shiitake mushrooms, in the meanwhile, are also setting out on their pilgrimage from their starting point. And the duck-billed platypus is starting out on its pilgrimage. And, uh, you know, the, the, um, the magnolia is starting out on its pilgrimage. And as we go back in time, we are going to meet fellow travelers at moments where we have a common ancestor, who Dawkins, which Dawkins calls a concestor. And when we meet the common ancestor, the ancestor tells a story, and the story is about what we have in common, i.e. so the first, first person we meet, quote unquote, is, it's all written in his voice, so it's not cutesy, he doesn't do it, impersonate animals, animal voices in a Disney sort of way, but um, the first, obviously the first person we meet is the common ancestor of chimps, bonobos, and humans. And so that that ancestor, that concestor, tells a story about what something fundamental that we have in common with chimps and bonobos. And of course, as we go further back in time, um, we're meeting ancestors from the animal kingdom, and then from plants, um, and finally from bacteria and archaea. archaea. And the things that we have in common become more and more fundamental. Uh, it's an absolutely brilliant um, way of structuring a book, and it's um, it's thrilling um, as you're moving back in time. And I think there are there are not that many stages. There's something like thirty six. I might be getting that wrong, but it's somewhere in the thirties. There's something like thirty six common ancestors between us and the beginning of life. By the time we then, there are only 36 meetings, and by the time before we have met everybody on the planet, as it were, everybody, if we personalize bacteria and things as well. Um, and um, I think, you know, that is one of the most moving books I have read ever. And I don't see how, whether or not you believe in God is is relevant, why you would not, why you would not be fascinated and moved by by the richness of what is around us in the real world and why you would not find meaning in human relationships in your love for other people why you would not find that meaning why you need to be religious to find that meaning i don't understand that at all and i definitely don't see why you would need to be christian and as somebody from an non-Western, non-Christian tradition, I find that very insulting. <laughs> like, go fuck off with your Johnny-come-lately religion. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. Like I said, I, I mean, that that's beautiful. I haven't read um, that Dawkins book. It sounds lovely. I always used... Um, Carl Sagan to uh, to to sort of get me there to start 
bootstrapping the philosophy from the the is to the ought in the in the David Hume structure to get to build to build a bridge from the is to the ought because I I agree you know th- this is where to get dorky and philosoph- philosophical about it Sam and 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 Jordan when they had their their famous little debate series that was basically the bedrock that they hit was David Hume with his famous insight that you cannot get an ought from an is, you cannot derive an ought from an is. So there's no description of the way the universe is that tells you how the universe ought to be. And logically, he's correct. But to do anything, to bootstrap ourselves anywhere, we have to start building that bridge. So building it with, I don't know if you were getting at it with Dawkins in some way of, you know, we're all, it's almost, I was thinking of Carl Sagan in that, you know, we're all, star stuff, right? Like the, we are the universe. The, the, the insight that he, that I latched on with him and I wasn't the only one was that beautiful sentence where he said, we are a way for the universe to know itself. Mm. Now, like that, that sounds like poetry because it's so beautiful, but you actually think about the sentence and it's just a pure scientific insight. We are a way for the universe to know itself. That sentence smuggles in that we are star stuff. So it smuggles in just the, the physical world. It smuggles in the mystery of consciousness. It doesn't say how, we don't know how, but we all know, at least subjectively, that we are a way to figure things out. We're in this mysterious soup of atoms, but there's patterns in it, and we have this strange ability to predict them and to start you know, putting things together and figuring things out. That's bizarre. So all of that from some you know zoomed-out view from nowhere is just totally mysterious that we are a way for the universe to know itself. This is a universe, if you zoom out far enough, that has self-awareness. And we are bizarrely the locus to do that. So, but even in that sentence, there is no ought. There's nothing that demands that we the universe ought to know itself. But to me, it seems like the only game in town. Mm. Like I don't know, again, if like if the is is that sentence that we are a way for the universe to know itself, if that's the David Hume is that's a description of the of the universe that we find ourselves in and i want to try to build a bridge to ought of how the universe ought to be when i build the bridge made up of that sentence i i maybe i'm failing in an imagination but i can't imagine another bridge you, you can imagine another bridge where it's like well you know well we shouldn't know ourselves and okay well that one ends very quickly then we all just kill ourselves and that's the end of it uh, but the the bridge of well then we ought to try to know ourselves if if there's some if there's one cosmic law in the universe call it a commandment that the universe um, should know itself or it has some potential to know itself and we are a vessel to help it maximize that well okay cool I'll accept that commandment and if you call that cosmic commandment God go for it like whatever name you want to put on that whatever story you want to put on that I'm all about it I think that's just science because then the enterprise of how does the universe know itself every step along the way no matter no matter how big or small or in your personal life or in a, or in looking in a lab for some answer is hopefully advancing that cause and not every turn will be easy and not every turn will be correct but that's you know if, if there's a direction of the universe that you can derive from that and you can as you suggested call it a meaningful direction well that that's how I've that's how I do it I wish more people would adopt it I suppose if it sounds like I'm I'm preaching in a in a version of science well I am and and I and I think this is why like where 
when you do the deep dives in the philosophy of atheism, again, it starts to sound like religion, but to be to be maybe snarky about it, it starts to sound like the right one <laughs> where it's like, oh, this is the one that actually brings us to the universe. And you and I on this podcast, you talking about Dawkins, me talking about Sagan, we're talking about storytellers who I, I feel like we're engaged with trying to tr- tell stories about the universe we find ourselves in. Um, and that's that's exciting. I think we need more of that kind of stuff. If if that relates back to sort of the Sam and Majid conversation and and maybe the the landing spot of the for, reform movement of something like Islam, so be it. I, I'm not sure. Uh, and if a religion, as you sort of suggested, you're a fan of some and, and not of others, you're using that the term religion there in maybe a more um, specific way about like, a, you know, teachings, the doctrine. Mm, yeah. And, yeah, teachings and lessons and, a, and tradition. And I'm totally with you. Islam has unique challenges that we have to admit that are are absent from other things. Sam, of course, famously always uses the example of Jainist Buddhism. Yes, they're all unique. They all have different challenges. Um, and and maybe some can get there easy more easily than others, and that's that's fine. I mean, if we can pull things from certain stories that survive the kind of investigation that you and I are clearly interested in doing, then then that's great. But but I but I admit that it's 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 a big challenge, and we are we're finding out more and more about the universe that we're actually in at such a rapid pace that obviously the stories and the storytellers are having trouble keeping up. And can't build millions, you know, not, not millions, thousands of years of tradition and architecture that make them sort of have a certain gravity to it. You know, like quantum mechanics wasn't a thing 300 years ago <laughs> that anybody knew. So it's not like there was a story that was slowly kind of coming out about what that might mean or how to build an ought from that is that could sort of get more beautiful over time. It's just very new. And unfortunately, we're probably going to learn new things faster than we can come up with a good story for it. Can I, can um, I, can I add a few things? Of course, yeah. So I love the David Deutsch book and this sort of vertiginous thing that he does. In my favorite chapter in particular, where he talks about, imagine if you have the intelligence, you can create yes. almost anything. So he imagines a... A group of people or aliens or highly advanced humans in some completely desolate area of space. It's not a complete vacuum. So you have a a few molecules, a few atoms, hydrogen atoms or whatever floating around. And from that, and he takes you through the stages bit by bit, if you have the knowledge from that, you can create an entire civilization. It's really extraordinary that that chapter, um, and it's it's very similar to another of my favorite books, which is by the recently kind of disgraced. Although I, I'm I'm yeah I I, th- I feel like the jury is maybe still out on that, but the recently um, recently disgraced scientist, what's his is this name, Lawrence Krauss, <laughs> a universe from nothing, which is um, which is also also plays this kind of game yeah. of um, why is there nothing? In, why is there something and not nothing? Well, because there was a very small imbalance between matter and antimatter. There was just ever so slightly more matter than antimatter in the universe. So most things were matter and antimatter complete in complete balance, and they met each other. And 
and self mutually self-destructed, but there was just a tiny, tiny bit of matter left over, like those few hydrogen atoms floating in the in the um, desolate region of space in the a thought experiment Deutsch does. And from that, you have gradual effects and you get a kind of snowball. There's a the opposite of a law of di diminishing returns. It's a kind of law of increasing returns. Right. And from that, you eventually get everything. So I absolutely love those, those thought experiments, but I feel like I'm not sure that that Maybe it has something to do with morality because there is a beauty there. Mm. So I, there's a kind of awe and a beauty at nature, which is how, how I felt um, reading Dawkins' book. I felt that Dawkins' tone, ironically enough, was reverential in that book. Yes, yes, yeah. It's a kind of awestruck thing. And so I can't help feeling there's some just beauty in the, way, in, in the complexity of nature. Yeah. It's always more amazing than you think it's going to be. You know, I read a book that was about photosynthesis. It's called, it's by, um, I will put it in the show notes. It's called Eating the Sun. Mm. And I was so, um, I, I'm not, I don't have a, a science background, so I don't think I could even tell you right now how photosynthesis <laughs> works. I think I've forgotten. But I remember, you know, vaguely the details of it. And I was so thrilled that I was walking around for days in this kind, even though I hadn't completely understood it because I don't have um, the right scientific training, but I was walking around for days in this, with this feeling of euphoria because yeah. it's just so extraordinary how much is happening within the plant and how beautifully designed, quote unquote, I don't think it was designed, but you know, evolved, the mechanism is. So there's that kind of sense of wonder, which I can't help feeling is connected to something good. Knowledge is better than ignorance. Yeah. That's yeah, one yeah, the, moral that's like thing. The Deutsch, the Deutsch description of pessimism, right? Or is, uh, is, uh, what, what is it that pe the pessimism is, is the, uh, uh, what am I? What am I saying? Oh, all all evil is due to lack of knowledge, which is actually an explanation for evil rather than like a description of pessimism. So yeah, the only thing that's standing between us and solving climate change is the knowledge of how to do it. I I, I subscribe to an optimistic uh, to a Matt Ridley style optimism on that. Yeah, yeah. To solve climate change, what we need is more brains working on the problem, and we will yeah. come up with a solution. Although. In the meantime, species are going extinct. What's also important to like fold into Deutsch's worldview there of explanation is that, uh, yes, yeah, so all, all evil is due to lack of knowledge. But in, in knowledge, he also includes political knowledge and possible, possibly also moral knowledge. But the knowledge of how minds work is also part of the knowledge that we may need to change people's behavior or move people in certain directions. So, yeah, it's not just like how do we make the ocean reflect the sun or some big crazy engineering thing, which might be the thing that does it for all we know. Uh, it might also be political knowledge and possible moral knowledge of how to do it. So there's all kinds of knowledge that, that how to nudge people into better habits, for example, might be, right. it could be that. I think that Sam Harris plays a slightly different game. I keep saying Blake plays a game and I don't mean that in some sort of yeah. derogatory sense, but it's an intellectual sort of thought game experiment. Yeah. And derivation of morality is different. Mm. 
And I rather like it, although I think that it still begs, begs the question. Um, because he says, you know, the oh, one thing of which you can be sure, the one thing I'm sure of is that I exist. Yeah. I don't know about you. Maybe I'm schizophrenic and you don't exist at all. And I'm just hearing a voice in my head. Right. And I think you're coming through these earphones, but in fact, I just, I really need meds. Maybe I'm actually asleep or in a coma right now or plugged into some kind of vat in the matrix and this is all a dream. Right. But I exist and I feel something and I'm capable of happiness and I'm capable of suffering. And so I prefer happiness and I want to avoid suffering. So therefore, by analogy, if I assume other people exist and also feel the same way, then rationally I should increase their happiness and decrease their suffering. This is the point where it begs the question, why should I do that? Why shouldn't I just be a really evil person who wants to increase the suffering of the other people? Yeah, there are some problems. So yeah, you're referencing his work in the moral landscape, which, which I think... Um, yeah. is mm-hmm. yeah, I'll, I'll try to do like the most charitable thing. This is another thing I, I think in my list of things I've been talking about or, or thinking about recently um, is uh, I'll set aside the moral landscape argument for, for just a, a small moment because I think Sam's effort to make a case for secular morality is really, really important. Whether the, there, I think there are begging the questions and he would admit when he's sort of doing the the cheat, as sort of I said, you have to bootstrap yourself somewhere. He's doing a cheat at some point. Um, but the the necessity to, um, like his best point, I think, is that we have to converge on these things. The reason why he entered sort of the public space is that we can no longer afford to have these vastly different philosophically moral sort of frameworks operating on the same planet because we just are too overlapped and the toys we have are too destructive for each other. And so we just have to simply converge. And I'll I'll give you this. This is something that was on my list that that um, I was thinking about talking about was this notion of creating new gods. And this is also it relates to everything we've been talking about. And I'm sort of borrowing some of the thinking from Yuval Harari, who wrote Sapiens and, and Homo Deus, because he ends, mm-hmm. I believe it's Sapiens, he ends that entire book with a simple question of what do we want to want? Rather than just the simple, we're all familiar with, of what do we want? The, the notion of what do we want to want has always been the domain of God and gods, right? It's like you, you want something, and we could talk about free will, We'll take the religious view that free will exists in some some way or whatever, but you want something and that's fine. And then you have free will. But what you should want to want is here in this book or in this religious tradition or is this teaching. And now it's sort of up to you to match what you want to the thing that you want to want. So just like, for example, of, of why I think this matters and why we're at a unique time in human history. And I think why you've all would agree and why uh, I'll, I'll loop it back around to why Sam's work is important, although also, yes, possibly imperfect in the moral landscape, is imagine something like the self-driving car. So the self-driving car, and we talked about the trolley problem already, people have written about this a lot, is, you know, of, of going to get itself into trouble with the, the trolley problem, where it might be in some scenario where it has a choice where it has to either run over the person in front of it or drive itself into a wall and possibly kill the driver. What does it do? I'm sure a lot of us and your listeners have, have are familiar with this 
issue we're having. Nick Bostrom, the philosopher, called it moral philosophy on a deadline, which is pretty funny because this is now, of course, an mm. engineering problem. Somebody has to program. Well, it's also a marketing problem. It's you know, I, I want problem, the car yeah. that, you know, I, if I'm honest, I want the car that will kill the pedestrian. <laughs> of course, yeah. Uh, rather than drive me into yeah, we, like we have some choices right like we can make a we, we can make a, a consequentialist car that suddenly does like a face scan and like figures out who it might kill and make some moral calculation about who it kills or a deontological car as you're saying who never kills the driver i feel a deontological car would sell better it would definitely sell better but like should we do that or should we let the driver like choose as if, it, as if it's an engine but let, let's let's go with a slightly different thought experiment let's imagine you have a somewhat supercomputer in front of you a, a, a super intelligent computer although we can argue about what that really means because we're already building algorithms and building code that people sort of even the people who build it don't even really understand how it works we could talk about sort of like alpha go but imagine you have a, a machine in front of you that you've you know, it, it has like all this crazy automation and let's call it soft AI and it's going to decide for you. And we just sort of put all of our morality into it. We all just sort of like write a bunch of code and put our morality into it. And we basically then just trust it to do its thing. And nobody understands how it actually works, right? Like hundreds of programmers worked on it and maybe they all understand a tiny bit, but no human actually knows how the algorithm works. And then the thing goes into practice. We just trust that it's going to do the best possible thing. And then it does something and it kills something. Let's say in your case, it kills the, the person and not the driver. And we just sort of shrug and say, well, that's the moral algorithm and we just have to trust it. So definitionally there at that moment, we have created a God because God definitionally is an algorithm that you can't understand, but you just have to trust. In this case, we understand the algorithm perfectly well. No? But but imagine no, but imagine we, we built something that we don't understand. Because this is already happening. Yeah, if we understand it, then we can well, we can answer that one. Do we want to make a consequentialist God? Or do we want to make a deontological God? And if so, which deontology are we going to put into it? But even imagine more of a black box, lockbox. So something like AlphaGo, this might be a bit of a, a stretch, but AlphaGo was the AI that that famously beat, you know, the best Go players in the world, what now, two and a half years ago or something. That, you know, it, I don't want to get too too technical on it, but it used the machine learning neural network kind of algorithm to play itself a billion times and basically teach itself how to play. It cheated. Uh, or appear it to teach itself how to brute play. Force. <laughs> you could call it cheating. Yeah. But but it in the end, how it was winning, we really had no idea. And even the programmers don't know how it was winning. Sure, they know the structure of like what it did, the process to get there, but they don't know why they don't know what it's going to do next and and it just won so imagine a self-driving car that was working on some moral algorithm that we didn't know what it was going to do next and it was just operating and we just had to trust it because you know that's what we did so there's a there's, like any way you you shape this either in your thought experiment where we know what it does and we're going to program it. So, okay, what are we going to program it with? Are we just going to let Elon Musk be the one who decides what algorithm that we all live under? Because if we say, let's just trust Elon Musk to do this. He's like a super moral dude. And so whatever he goes with, we're just going to go with it. Well, Elon Musk himself is an algorithm that no one else can understand. He's just an algorithm made out of meat <laughs> rather than silicon. So like, it's not a new philosophical problem, but this notion of creating 
gods and bigger and bigger gods. The self-driving car one might be just a limited mini god. But if you go with that definition of God, that it's an algorithm that you can't understand, right? Like something terrible happens, an earthquake happens or your child gets cancer or something terrible in your life happens. And a religious person says, it's God's plan. God has a plan for you. Like, just trust it. Well, you know, it's the same thing. It's like if the car does something, it's like, just trust it. We, we built the algorithm and just trust that it's doing the right thing. You don't have to be religious for that either. That is the Stoic philosophy, also the Amor Fati, because what other choice do you have? There are the things you can control and the things you can't control, and the, you can maybe control your response to it. I think to push back on the Stoics, I think, I think and this is why... Yuval's next book was called Homo Deus because he was making a rather strong case that maybe that philosophy that you just pointed to uh, is done. And Homo Deus, as you know, obviously gods, is the power of gods is now in our hands. Where so because the Stoics are even saying like, what choice do you have? An earthquake happens, or a child gets cancer, and you just have to accept it, or you try to cure it, but you don't, you can't cure it, or we can't find the answer to climate change, and we just have to accept this. That that is that doesn't get you out of the just trust the algorithm. That just sort of admits to that we're stuck with the algorithm that we happen to, that happens to exist in this universe. And that sounds like a crazy thing, right? If the algorithm, the natural algorithm of the universe is the one we're, we're stuck with or that you have to make peace with, that, that has probably always been true because what other choice did you have? But I'm, I'm trying to sort of suggest and make a case that may, I don't know how close we are to it, but the conversations about morality, because we now get to, it seems that the power of the gods is in our hands in a way that it never really has been before, um, especially to affect the lives of others in this way. It's not just choosing your own God, it's choosing a God for society, which is, which is why I think, you know, Sam's entire career is under this sort of urgency um, is, is in our hands in a way that, as never before, that we might, we might not be stuck with that God. It's almost the, the Nietzsche God is dead, but then you finish that paragraph and it's like, and then we have to rebuild him. Well, we might get to rebuild him and in maybe some really cosmic and maybe dystopian way, we'll rebuild him in our image and maybe we won't really like what we see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how that turns out. So Jay, just to, to because I know we need to come to a close uh, at, so, soon. So, I wanted to ask you, how do you see the role of philosophy in modern life and in politics? And how, how do you see your own work fitting into that? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I've, uh, I'm trying to make a case that philosophy and the role of philosophy should, you know, demand more of a space at the table, uh, with politics and with psychology. And, and in order to do that, it also has to be uh, accessible and fun and playful. So, I mean, in, in a concrete uh, avenue, my, the podcast that, that I'm launching in, in June with, uh, with Coleman Hughes and all these really cool guests, including David Deutsch, who we talked about, and John Haidt, who we mentioned, and Sean Carroll, who we mentioned, a lot of people I'm, I'm really privileged to, to work with these people, um, is really playful and fun and kind of goofy and silly. And I hope can invite a lot of people into these kind of conversations uh, that maybe they thought weren't for them or, or are not applicable, you know, that feel like totally apart from their lives, but that the role of philosophy and moral philosophy and the point of thought experiments can be really useful. Um, 
I was talking to actually from the show, Susan Wolf, who's our guest on the very first episode, she gave some really lovely pitches for philosophy. So hopefully the, the first episode brings some, some people into what I'm trying to do. And it's, you know, it's about like, you don't, you don't often, you know, I said the philosophical mind is trying to discover truth, but it, it rarely does. But what the, the effort of moral philosophy is about in many ways or practicing it or engaging in those kind of conversations really makes you much more attuned to kind of the subtle differences and variables that are at play when talking about moral philosophy or anything, really. It makes you a much more careful thinker and deliberator about why people are doing what they're doing or what you ought to do in the world. And that, I think, is is just incredibly um, valuable because we tend to make a lot of mistakes as a species when we just charge into something with either pure emotion or pure reason, both ways can actually get you in a lot of trouble. And I find the effort of moral philosophy when done really carefully makes you, (laughs) makes you see things that you didn't know were there when you first looked about moral questions and moral decisions. Maybe even something as terrible as ISIS or something as awful as the things we've mentioned in this podcast about child cancer and, you know, meteorites hitting earth and all kinds of things, you notice things that you didn't notice before. And I think it, it, it makes you more, um, Paul Bloom would not be a fan, but more empathetic, which ought not to be the driver of your moral reasoning or your moral decision, but may inform why people are really maybe doing what they're doing. You know, one thing that we didn't get to talk a ton about in this was about revealed intentions, but as a way almost to wrap it up, I think I, with my with the circles of the political mind and the psychological mind and the ph- philosophical mind, I feel like we're discovering a lot about the phil- or excuse me the psychological mind with this notion of revealed intentions. That as a really simple one that was brought out in the book Everybody Lies, you know, if you ask people on the street what kind of coffee they like, they inevitably always tell you, "I like a really rich, dark cup of coffee." And if that's the best data that we had forever, there would just be tons of rich, dark coffee around. But we know if you just follow their behavior, see what they actually put in their coffee, and you just measure it with some tracking device, it seems like everybody likes milky, sweet, thin coffee. And that like, seems like a trivial example, but that extends to other probably more impactful, more salient, meaningful areas of our life. And we're discovering, I think, more and more about how minds work and how we think, and maybe not always for the better. And clearly the political effort is learning from it and pushing us further apart, it seems. And, you know, we've seen the polarization in in the discourse that happens, I think, from that. And I'm hoping that the philosophical mindset can enter that conversation with a lot more... um, um, what's the word? courage, I think, and self, some, some sort of confidence that it might be able to help <laughs> and it might be able to find some answers in this space. Sam has gotten in trouble for assuming that there are, are probably right and wrong answers to a question like, should women be forced to wear a hijab? I commend him for that. I think we need more of that kind of philosophy even with the humility of that we might be wrong, but we're probably not, and we can no longer afford to live in a world where we assume that we 
are 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 probably wrong about that answer. It's it's okay to have enough courage to be like we might be making a mistake, but the stakes are too high, and we're we're probably right about a few things. So here we go. So I mean, if that if that's a way to wrap up sort of what I hope my my contribution can be, uh, I guess we'll we'll just we'll just have to see. <laughs> I think that's a great place to end, and um, I will put links to your work in the show notes, of course, and. Um, We'll update this with a link to the podcast once it's out in mid-June. Thank you so much, Jay. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for letting me just sort of uh, go down some holes. It's always a lot of fun. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus. By becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.